Matthew 6, we're in Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, what's called the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And we, since it is a prayer, we'll recite it together. And I will note that it ends there in verse 13, deliver us from evil. The doxology is not here. And I report to you that 99.9% of the best scholarship says it wasn't in the text of Matthew originally anyway. So I assure you that we're not leaving anything out. It's in other places of the scripture though, but the doxology is not there. So we'll end with deliver us from evil, which is our text today. But let's read now. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. After a few years of being a member of this church, long before I came on staff, I was invited back to one of the Baptist churches that I'd pastored back years earlier and just preached what I consider to be a normal, run-of-the-mill, garden-variety, everyday sermon. There wasn't anything special about it. It was just dealing with some things in Scripture. And the pastor of the church came up, who I've known him since he was a young man, and he said to me, Ron, all you ever do is preach on sin. I said, thank you very much. I'm glad somebody noticed. You know, that is our problem, and I don't want to belittle it in any way. But just look at this. We have the Lord's Prayer. We have a name that is to be hallowed, a kingdom that will come, a will to be done. Then we have the Lord dealing with our physical needs by and large, but they really go beyond bread to the need for the bread of life and give us this day our daily bread. And now in these last two petitions, and I think these are each a petition, there's two of them, they both deal with sin. Imagine something like that. Last week we dealt with the petition in the prayer that says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's dealing with sins past. Sins past have been taken care of. They've been pardoned by the Lord himself, as we saw with his blood atonement. He covered and took away our sin. But today, in this particular petition, we deal with sin's future. That is, sins that we haven't yet committed. Future sin is prevented. It is preempted. That's dealing with temptation. Past sins are forgiven. They are justified. The cross of Christ has atoned for our sins and satisfied the debt in every way, and it is finished. The books are closed. The verdict is in. We're declared not guilty. That's what it means to be justified, is to be declared righteous, not guilty in God's sight. But there is also the dealing with future sin. Future sin will be dealt with by sanctification. That is, God 
working through His Holy Spirit in our very regenerated souls will free us from sin as Christ did on the cross in Romans 6. He died to sin. And we in Him through that vital union died to sin as well. And we're no longer a slave to sin. Sin is no longer our master. As Paul says in Romans 7, we're no longer married to sin. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. What wonderful truth. But never did you hear me say we won't sin because we will. We just will. And that's what the Lord is instructing his disciples to come to terms with here in this particular petition. And that is sin in the future. Now sin, as I say over and over, has to do primarily with the legal standing that we have before the law. Now there is a legality, but there's also a morality. Sin is not only disobedience to the law, but it's also a filth and a pollution within itself. So the work of Christ must deal legally before the law of God with our sin, but then he must deal experientially and actually with us with respect to the filth of our sin and the, the uh, awful results of sin, the guilt, the condemnation, the fear, the anger, the anxiety, the low self-esteem, the loathing, all of the things that come with our sin, even the pride and the arrogance that denies that we're even in sin or we even have sin. And lo, even if we deal with it somewhat on the external, we have then that awful sin to deal with in our heart, which is self-righteousness. You know, when the Lord cleans us up, sometimes we think we did it ourselves. And most people think that life is just turning over a new leaf or making a new start. Now, sin's pastor dealt with by justification, that is the monergistic or the sole single work of God himself in Christ upon the cross. And upon that basis and foundation, as we saw last week, our past sins are forgiven. Our future sins are forgiven likewise, but there is now some hope that we can resist temptation. Sin is to be avoided. It is to be precluded. It is to be uh, fled sin in our lives. And what he said, well, with respect to the law, it's God's laws, God's commandments, God's precepts. In short, it's the will of God for our lives that it is expressed. And the law is holy, righteous, and good, and good for us. In fact, it is so good, in fact, that if you keep it perfectly, you'll have a wonderful life. You'll have a very blessed and wonderful life if you keep it perfectly, personally, and perpetually. If not, you need grace. And that's what the preaching of the cross is all about. That's what preaching and lifting up Christ is all about. It's because we all stand in that same need. And our topic today, it deals with the temptation that's involved in that. Now, the word temptation can mean a trial or it can mean some kind of a test. God does not tempt anyone so that he pushes them into sin. What he does do, though, is he will test us. And a couple of famous tests in the scriptures, you remember, was Abraham Genesis 22, God tested Abraham, says it right there in the text, when he offered up Isaac. And you know the story there. And, and Abraham passed the test and thus manifested that his faith 
had a work to go with it, and faith without works is dead. And when James comes to prove that faith without works is dead, he cites Abraham's obedience to God in offering Isaac. Of course, as it turned out, he didn't need to offer Isaac because if the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't take away sin, the blood of poor old Isaac wouldn't take away sin either. It took the precious blood of the Lamb of God to take away sin. And then another occasion of temptation in the Scripture that we read about and a trial that, that a man's put through is the Lord allowed Satan to tempt Job. And Job went through all the tests, and you've read the book, and it's just, it's overwhelming. Uh, when I was watching the uh, tornadoes kind of go through uh, the East Texas up in Oklahoma and Arkansas area uh, Friday afternoon and Friday night, and uh, I remember part of the test that poor old Job went through was the whirlwind, not counting cattle thieves and fire and pestilence and everything else, personal boils and sores and everything you can possibly think of. The, the Lord allowed that, but the person doing the mischief, the doing the evil was the devil, Satan himself, the evil one. And so the prayer is that the Lord will not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that the Lord lead us not into temptation is a little bit misleading because all of the English translators follow the Vulgate, the Latin, which is the word therefore in, uh, to induce, inducus, which means to lead into, and they've, they've translated that, but the actual word means to bring us into, and there's a difference. There's a difference between leading us into temptation and bringing us into temptation. Bringing us into temptation is to bring us through the possibility of the ambiance and being with and around sin. Lord never promises to protect us from that. In other words, sin, the opportunity is there. The flesh presses in on us, our own lust, our own flesh. And then also we have the world, all the temptations in the world, the world, the flesh, the devil. And by the way, that word at the end, they're evil. Uh, the scholars debate whether it is masculine, which means the evil one, or whether it may be read as neuter, which means it's in principle, the very idea of evil, the, the great force. But really doesn't matter. Either one or deleterious to our spiritual life and even our physical life with dire consequences. The most extreme is the soul that sins, it shall die. But then all of these other curses and, and maladies come upon you because of sin. So there is nothing to be said good for sin. Sin is absolutely the worst thing that's happened to the human condition and as we read our newspapers and watch our televisions and our laptops, we see all of the malady in the world, the suffering, the violence, the tyranny, the murder, the war, the genocide, all of the abuse. Everything you can think of is all a direct result of one or more of the commandments of God being broken by individuals, by corporate groups, by states and nations, et cetera, et cetera. So dealing with sin, in this case, principally in our personal life, is a very important thing. In fact, the Lord admonishes saints, his uh, disciples to pray during one of the most trying hours of their life, and that is in the time when Jesus was in the garden just before his arrest. He told his disciples, even at that moment, other things could have been on his mind, but instead he tells his disciples, he says, watch and pray 
that you do not enter in temptation. What's the apostolic teaching? What do the apostles teach us about dealing with our temptation? Well, I'll look at a couple of passages in the scriptures. And the first one, and I'd like you to turn there if you would. There's a pew Bible if you need it. But the first one I'd like you to look at is the book of James. These are familiar passages to us, but this is the apostolic teaching on what to do about temptation. As I said, the Lord does allow us in his providence to be within the environs and the proximity of forces that cause us to sin, our own flesh, the world of the devil, of course. And that's the thing. Don't, don't have us succumb to the sin that presses in upon us from within and from without. Deliver us from that evil and that evil one. But let's look at a little sharper focus. James chapter 1. When he's speaking here now of temptation in the sense of trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's temptation in the sense of testing. Tests are put there to see if you pass or fail. And I think the Lord rarely grades on a curve. It's usually pass or fail. And that particular admonition is also filled with encouragement. This is your sanctification. If you ever pray for the Lord to make you more godly, more holy, more righteous, more like Christ, then the Lord will do that through manifold temptation. Manifold means many. Variety of temptations. Tests. He will work you through. And some of them are severe. And many of them will fail. We won't pass. But that's God's method. He works on us. He disciplines. He, he brings us into the proximity of opportunities to obey. And if we obey, great is your joy. I don't think there's any greater thrill in the world than that feeling that comes from having failed, confessed a sin, seen it forgiven by God, being tested again in the same arena, and pass. Don't fall into sin. Have a victory over it. Have a wonderful moment when God fulfills his promise that he gives us in the new covenant where he said by the prophet, I will put my law within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will help you, assist you. I will even go to the point of making you and keeping the law and, and obedience and, and away from sin is not just God's task alone. He's handled that with Christ at the cross. It's a synergistic work. If justification is a monergistic work, that is, God only is doing the work in our justification, in our sanctification, in our being more righteous, more holy, more like God. It is a synergistic, that is a, a, a syncretism, a, a working together of God the Holy Spirit within us, convicting us of sin, showing us our sin, giving us the strength 
And we ourselves giving it everything we've got. This notion that you can get saved and one time will last you for a lifetime and you look at salvation as a, as a fire insurance policy against hell, those are pagan notions and have infected many Christians and sent them to ruin. God expects us as believers to please Him. And it's a joy to do so. And He will enable us to. And when we do, it is a wonderful, wonderful peace. And there's a bl- Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is atoned for. That was, the, that was David. And y'all, y'all have heard a few of King David's confessions of his sin. Wonderful. When it's confessed, it's forsaken. And the next time we come, we don't yield. We don't succumb. Now, um, by the way, the word that's used here often is, this is the word steadfastness, and it's used all through Scripture. In fact, we'll see it in another text here in a minute. In that same chapter, James chapter 1, uh, just look over there to uh, about verse 12. Blessed, sounds like a beatitude, doesn't it? Sounds like something out of Psalms or Proverbs. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Boy, if I was a preacher, I'd stop right there and preach Christ. <laughs> you talk about a man that was steadfast. That word means, it it's literally means to under, to, to bear up under, to bear a load. And that's, what, and that's what Jesus Christ did. But the beatitude is directed to us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then James gives us a lot of good practical help right here. Verses 13 and 14 and 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God is not the source of our problem when it comes to sin. He's the solution to our problem when it comes to sin. No one say I'm tempted. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But. Here's the circumstance. Here's the circumstance. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The fountain of temptation comes right out of our lustful, covetous, larcenous, mendastic hearts. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. See how James strings it out? He can see there's the inception, the conception, then there's a gestation, and then there's a bringing forth of an overt act. And it's a, it's a, a continuum across there. Where do you think you need to start dealing with that? At the inception. At the point of the lust. Jesus has already made that point, and he'll make it again in the Sermon on the Mount, how important it is to deal with those desires of the heart. And here it is right here, his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And I love it that James didn't stop right there. That's all true, but he tells us the whole story. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, if I were to admonish you only this morning along this text and along these lines, I'm sure it would be helpful and the Spirit of God would use it and it would be magnificent in our lives, but we don't stand in this particular place all alone. Our Lord has gone there before us. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, four in verse 14, 414 Hebrews, it's only about three or four pages back if you want to turn back to it in your Bible. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's precisely what we're doing when we're praying this petition of the Lord's Prayer. We're drawing ourselves, moving toward the throne of grace, coming near. Drawing near means to come forward in prayer and petition to the throne of grace. Notice that Christ rules in righteousness and his throne is the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy. And that's really all we need. We come with nothing but empty hands. We come for mercy. How many times in our prayers do they simply say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You know what's beautiful about that when that when those two men were praying in the temple and Jesus made that observation? One of them said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the gospel writer didn't leave it out. He went ahead and finished the story. That man went home justified. And that's the way we come to the Lord and find grace to help in time of need. And then, in my Bible, it's on the same page, but chapter 5, looking over to about verse 7, we last, as we conclude, we see Christ. Christ in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's the way Christ prayed. Loud cries and tears. Have you ever called upon the name of the Lord in desperation? Have you found yourself crying and couldn't help it? That's what coming to the Lord is all about when this burden of sin has you down, when the temptation is before you, and when you know I've fallen and failed so many times, here we go again. But the Lord is merciful. Here, here's, the, here's the Lord's story. With loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. We talked about sin bringing forth death, but in this, this instance, this is exactly what he's praying. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ suffered all of the agonies and the pains around sin without actually being a sinner himself. He lived in his obediently perfect life. All the things that press upon him, his own humanity pressed upon him. Yet, he didn't sin. The world pressed upon him. Yet, he didn't sin. The culture pressed upon him. The religious establishment pressed upon him. The awful filthiness of the people he hung around with, the prostitutes and the publicans and the sinners and all these, pressed upon him. Jesus loved to party. He was a man that was accused of being a gluttonous man and a winebibber. He enjoyed the, the feast at Cain on every, all the other parties he went to. But he never sinned. Think about that. But he suffered the temptations. He had to resist. He had to fight. In his humanity, he, he had to do everything you can possibly imagine. And this is how he learned obedience. And this is his active obedience that is imputed to us in Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. Christ earned his way to heaven. His salvation by works, yes. 
<laughs> Christ had to work. Not, not our works, but Christ works. And we're saved on the basis of what Christ did for us. And then he comes along and he bears our sin. Although he knew no sin, nevertheless, the sin, our sin was placed upon him. And he suffered the guilt and the shame. Read those Psalms in the Old Testament over and over that talk about the, the suffering and the sinfulness and the prayers of confession. Jesus prayed those on our behalf. He understood all of the burdens and the agony of sinfulness without being a sinner. He became sin for us. The way Peter says it is that he bore in our bodies, that's in our emotions, that's in our mind. He bore in his body all those things we bear, those torturous things in his body, yet without sin. And being made perfect, that's what happens when you obey the Lord completely, totally, 100% in all your life. That's what Jesus did. From his conception, his birth, all the way through to his death, he never sinned. He was made perfect. And being made perfect, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And the rest of us is being designated as a high priest by the order, on the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about who Melchizedek is some other year. You just need to hear these beautiful words as we conclude. He, being made, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him.